So, you want to work in a zoo? Well, you're in the right place. We're going to be talking to zookeepers, researchers, conservationists and many more people about their careers. We will discuss how they got into doing what they do now and of course we'll be asking them for their advice to those that aspire to work with animals or for animals and the natural world. So, what are we talking about today, Joe? Well, at its heart, the World Planet Trust is a conservation organisation. Uh, so for our visitors, what they see on site is obviously the animals and plants that we care for here at Paynton and Newquay. Mm -hmm. But just as important is the conservation work we are doing um, what we call in situ. So that basically means in the wild, you know, with the species and habitats that, yeah. that are out there. So today we're going to be talking to two people who are directly involved with that, responsible for coordinating all the projects that we support. They are incredibly busy people with crazy <laughs> yeah. schedules. So um, we are actually going to be talking to them individually this okay, time. Okay, so who is it that we're going to be talking to first then? So first we've got Andy. Um, so he's worked for the Trust for quite a few years now in various different roles. Um, but he now heads up our Conservation Project Partnerships. It's a very fancy sounding very job fancy. title. Uh, but he works mainly with our overseas projects. So I'll let him explain what his fancy sounding job title actually involves in his own words. Excellent. So let's hear from uh, our discussion with Andy then. We are joined by Andy. So Andy, who are you and what do you do for Wild Planet Trust? Uh, my name's Andy Bowket. I'm the Conservation Planning and Partnerships Manager. Uh, which is quite a lot of words. Mm -hmm. um, I've got kind of two roles, really. One is the, the planning aspect, which is mainly to support the chief science officer, so my boss, in terms of developing policy and strategy for the trust going forward. And the other one, the partnerships aspect, is I focus on the overseas conservation projects. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, our partnerships overseas, where we... Um, send funding and work together to save species or halt species decline in the wild. Excellent, excellent stuff and obviously we'll get into what some of those projects are and what those partnerships are as we go through the podcast. I'm sure Joe's got plenty of questions about that. Yep. But my next question for you Andy is what is the strangest job you've ever had? Yeah I've done loads of jobs but because I've, I've done quite a lot of kind of uh, work through temping agencies where mm -hmm. they just shove you in anywhere and you've got no idea what you're doing. Um, so probably not that strange but I did do, uh, I worked at the Totnes um, milk bottling factory for okay. a while uh, which was shift work like 12 hour shifts yeah. like overnight and that added that had a certain weird quality to it. <laughs> what did you actually do in the milk? Well, it, mainly because you're like an you know, agency staff and they mm. can't trust you to do anything you know that requires any skill or knowledge. <laughs> it was mainly um, filling trucks full of uh, milk containers. Uh, okay. I did once work in the bit where the actual empty milk bottles, so this is going way back, came in to be cleaned and we had to line them up and... Uh, they all got brush, bottle brushed. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. How clean do they actually get them? This is just personal. personal they they got them very clean, but they but they came in in a right state. Quite often, there's a lot of, I remember there's lots of slugs in them. Oh, no. uh, and I remember yeah. the guy saying to me, if there's any money in there, you keep it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Why would there be money in a milk bottle? I think because people used to leave, sometimes put money in in the milk bottles that they returned, the empties, oh, to like I tip, never put to milk, tip the milkman. I never tip my milkman like that. Oh, <laughs> I also enough. never clean my milk bottles thoroughly because I figure that they do get a good they clean. They did and get now clean. I know that. Oh, there you go. Now so, you know. But the milk, sadly, the milk factory is is now closed. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Okay, right. I suppose we should get off milk bottling and actually yeah, talk in, about into your what you do now. role. Um, so, I suppose we'll always start with a bit, about, a bit about how you actually got where you are today, because I think you're probably a fairly similar path to me, really, in that you were a student way back when. I was, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was very much the foot in the door. I did zoology um, uh, undergraduate degree at. Uh, Cardiff University and as part of that we had the opportunity of doing a year in industry a placement year and I came here to Paint and Zoo mm -hmm. and was part of the research team watching monkeys and mm -hmm. uh, designing uh, environmental enrichment for them um, but even at that point what I really wanted to do was to work in the field so I wanted to work with really to work with um, with threatened wildlife yeah you know kind of at the at the kind of with the conservation angle really um 
and after I finished my degree, I got the opportunity to go out to Zimbabwe, which was a project connected to uh, Peyton Zoo and Wild Planet Trust, um, and which we still support, actually, the Dambari Wildlife Trust mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe. Uh, and I, that was a kind of semi-voluntary post. I, mean, yeah. I had, a, had flights paid for, but you know, it was basically uh, a voluntary role. Uh, and that was my first experience of, of going to Africa, of working in the field, uh, of working with people from a different culture and, and country. Uh, and, the, and the things went from there, really. Oh, amazing. When did you end up back here then? Yeah, so I, actually after the Zimbabwe, so I, I stayed a year and a half in Zimbabwe. And that was also when I uh, first worked with dikers, which are little antelope, okay. which became a bit of a theme for me professionally and, <laughs> and academically. Uh, so dikers are a, a small uh, African antelope that that kind of hide in the bushes. They're, so you don't think of gazelles in big herds. These are like little things that creep around and no one knows very much about them. So we were trying, we were radio tracking some in Zimbabwe uh, and that, and that was, a, became a big interest for me. Um, but actually, after Zimbabwe, I had a, a kind of break from working with uh, projects connected with the Wild Planet Trust. Mm-hmm. I went and I went to Mauritius, Very worked nice. on the Pink Pigeon project. Okay. Although actually, we do have links. Say, we do have links to that project. Links. Yeah, yeah. I know some of our bird uh, keepers have been out several times yeah. to help with that. Again, that was a kind of voluntary position, um, but it was working with really severely threatened species so even though i'd got that kind of field experience from from the dikers i wanted to um work on a a really kind of proactive conservation project hands-on um so that so i did uh that for a year Uh, and then shortly after that i actually came back to painton i kind of emailed and said oh uh you know if i came back and volunteered for a bit would you help me find a phd and carry okay. on with my academic studies uh, and uh, the, the trust agreed to that um, so uh, particularly because I was I was very interested to work on dikers again yeah uh, but this time on the more endangered species um, which uh, are either in West Africa or East Africa so we went for East Africa uh, and the, the PhD was in Tanzania oh amazing why do you like dikers so much I, I mean, <laughs> they're not the most charismatic of. They're not. Things. No, they're not. Um, people. I mean, you know, you 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 kind of uh, you grow very attached to your your study subjects, don't you? you do, so yeah. whatever it is, it probably if I'd have studied wood lice or something, I'd also be <laughs> yeah, into wood lice. Uh, but dikers are. I mean, they are they are very um, attractive animals. But I mean, the main thing is that. Is that is the fact that they're ignored by mm. most most people that haven't heard of them? Um, there's there's very few that are in zoos. You don't really see them on natural history documentaries because they're hiding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of them are nocturnal. They hide in the in the bushes. But also, but they're very important. They're very important components of the of the rainforest that they live in. Uh, just like we talk about monkeys as as sea dispersers and. Uh, you know they're structuring the the system that they're part of. Dikers are doing that, uh, you know, and they mm. and there's a lot of them. So these small species, although they don't go around in herds, but they are they have come in quite high densities. So they're so they're um, they're dispersing seeds, they're eating fallen leaves, they're kind of structuring the forest, uh, and they're also providing a really important prey base for a lot of the larger species. Yeah. yeah. So they're really important. I don't know if that exactly, I'm not sure that is why I like them so much, but uh, <laughs> probably just because no one else really knows very much about them. That's, that's, <laughs> right. that's really cool. Someone's got to advocate for the little we'll find ones. Find a niche, oh, yeah, can <laughs> <laughs> Cool. And so then you came back and did your PhD whilst you were working here, is that right? Yes, there was, it, was, it wasn't quite that simple, but basically I ended up doing the PhD part-time and working here as the overseas conservation officer. So there was you know, people left, and there was mm. opportunities to do that, um, which worked which worked really well. I mean, it meant, it meant the PhD was a marathon rather than a sprint. So mm-hmm. normally PhDs three or four years, and I took seven, I think. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, 
but there was other people in our research team doing similar things at the time so that, that was quite nice so we had although they weren't working on dikers <laughs> <laughs> there were people doing zoo research uh, yeah. mainly um, and they were also doing their PhDs part-time so we had a kind of a nice little, little commun- community of yeah. uh, people who were really stressed <laughs> <laughs> trying to do two things at once yeah Cool. So part of your role, you do actually get to go overseas, um, obviously not recent years with COVID, but you do get to over- go overseas quite a lot. Where, go and give us some of the amazing places in the world you've been. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very privileged. Um, I used to go two or three times a year uh, mm-hmm. to visit one of our uh, uh, international f- uh, conservation projects. Um, obviously, like you say, haven't hasn't been as regular. Well, haven't been at all since uh, since co- the first COVID lockdown. Although I am going to Nigeria next week, so that'll be the first yeah. time that we uh, that we go back out. Um, so, but yeah, I mean the the places that I've been most often are Tanzania, mm-hmm. uh, which was which was where I did my PhD, but where our uh, one of our uh, long term field projects has developed. Nigeria, which I just mentioned, which is another long-term uh, conservation project supported from Paint and Zoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zimbabwe, uh, we still support, although I wasn't personally visiting that project oh, okay. uh, over most, mm. you know, in recent times. Um, maybe I'll get to go back there, which would be nice because it's been nearly 20 years. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> so it would be quite interesting. Yeah. And we've also had projects in, in Sulawesi, in Indonesia, mm-hmm. which is an amazing place, fantastic place to visit, uh, and also in Vietnam. Um, so, I mean, the, the places I've been most often, actually, are, are Tanzania and Nigeria, but those are the projects I've visited once or twice as well. Nice. Fantastic. So when you actually go out to these projects, what kind of things are you doing when you're over there? Yeah, well, it's it's a mixture between the really kind of privileged exciting sexy stuff that that people probably imagine um but that is tends to be the minority of the time really because you know it is important to see the places that you want to work in and if like me you know you're interested in dikers and little tiny brown frogs uh (laughs) you know that is that is part of the of the excitement um but often the kind of really important things is is stuff uh, like it's much more boring like meetings and uh, training people uh, and some of that stuff you can do um, online and mm-hmm. that's what we found since since lockdown is that you know you can have some of these meetings online yeah but it's it's not quite the same and I, mm. I think I am looking forward to, to going out to Nigeria next week because I think there are some meetings you you, you just you just wouldn't schedule uh, mm. and it's only when you're trekking through the forest that you kind of you know have these ideas or yeah. Yeah. get the opportunity to talk to people in a, in a in a one-to-one kind of situation where you, and you and you do make progress yeah that way so yeah, i think the good. future is we'll we'll travel less but we'll still need to sometimes uh, yeah to travel and, and we could also bring people over here as well so that would be great to to allow we've which we've done a bit of in the past as well but if we can have some some of our overseas partners mm. uh, come and visit us at, at Paint and Nuki. I think that would be also be a great opportunity. That'd be really nice. Cool. Right, I'm going to make you pick your favourite child now. Which is your <laughs> favourite project, and why? So so <laughs> difficult. Um, uh, this you know, on a person on a purely personal level. Yeah. I'm going to go for Tanzania because <laughs> the dikers. Yeah, well, yeah, because of the dikers. That's that's why I went to Tanzania. Yeah. So when I, in my PhD, I, I travelled to, I went to visit lots of the uh, remaining forests in the Udzungwa Mountains. Mm-hmm. These are part of the Eastern Arc Mountains. They're really uh, exceptional biodiversity. Sometimes kind of nicknamed the Galapagos of Africa mm. because they've got lots of kind of unique species that have evolved uh, in isolation from each other on these mountain, in mountain tops. You know. Yeah. Um, and one of the places I went looking for for diker droppings because of course <laughs> it's, you can't it's hard to see them so you either set cameras or you pick up their poo uh, and glean what information you can okay, from that. Okay. <laughs> that was the that was the PhD. It was a, a genetics one, so I was, okay. I was extracting DNA from the from diker poo and uh, seeing what we could <laughs> tell from that. 
Uh, and but one of the places is that I, and I only went there for a week or so. But it's a reserve called the Uzungwa Scarp mm-hmm. in the southern Uzungwa. Uh, the Tsunga Mountains are not really that big, but because of the topography and the state of the roads, it takes mm. it's really hard to yeah. <laughs> travel around yeah. it. Um, and the Uzunga Scarp, the only thing, uh, apart from look, going there to look for dikers, the, other, the only other thing we knew was that some other researchers had been and found uh, species of amphibians, frogs and toads, that were not found anywhere else in the world. And not only that... They'd only been found in single sites within this forest, so like one little valley or one okay. swamp. So that was uh, an inspiration to, to take on a second kind of interest in the Udzungas, which mm. is the amphibian work. Yeah. Um, and that in turn, so you know, kind of the research led to action. So we wanted to help protect uh, that forest. Now it's, it's a, it was a forest reserve already, so mm-hmm. that was a, so it has a kind of some kind of status under the, under the government, um, but it didn't have any active protection, didn't have any uh, rangers or even mm. kind of local forest guards based, you know, in a in a shed on the edge of the border. <laughs> okay. you know, yeah. There was nothing yeah. there. The, the the people responsible were were miles and miles away in the nearest kind of major towns. Um, and that changed uh, in around 2016-2017 where the reserve was upgraded to a nature reserve status mm-hmm. and that gave it its own small Tanzanian staff to, yep. to run it, government staff. And that gave us a partner to work with. So also, also working with other, other people um, in Tanzania, primarily the Seven Tanzanian Elephant Programme, uh, we we got we went and meet, met with these guys and we said look you know we've we've been doing research there you know our our Tanzanian colleagues uh, you know are visiting this forest and the you know it's not looking good uh, yeah the, all the trends for the um, wildlife that we're able to monitor are, are going in the wrong direction mm-hmm. mm. um, you know we often find snares we often see evidence for illegal logging and they said well you know that's not that's not allowed in a nature reserve <laughs> but you know we don't have the staff even now it's a nature reserve you know with this four or five staff um so uh we started funding um the ranger patrols and also importantly training of uh government staff to use um modern equipment like GPS units and uh, okay, tracking yeah. devices, yeah. even smartphones actually nowadays. Yeah. So that they can record their um their patrols. So they they go out there, mm. walk up and down the mountain, camp overnight, uh they can remove snares, mm-hmm. uh and if they, if they encounter um people indulged in act- illegal activities and they can arrest them. Um uh so that's so that's been a as well as it being in Tanzania, which is mm. like you know, obviously something close to my heart, it's a it's a project where we've moved from in a in a kind of logical way from yeah. from the research side, gaining yeah. more information to uh, protection on the ground. Brilliant, cool. So that's kind of a natural evolution of that project. Yeah, yeah. and I think the next step is to work more closely with the communities there as well. Which yeah. I think is a really important thing. It's something that we do in other projects, um, but it's. Again, it's a kind of logical next step, really. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, what what's there? What do we need to do about it in the short term? And, and, and what are the ultimate solutions? Long term, yeah. exactly, yeah. which is to work with the local people. Um, I mean, some of those people are, are part of the patrols. Um, mm-hmm. So in a, in a very small way, uh, they benefit from the project. But, um, you know, it, we haven't kind of fully engaged with the kind of uh, community participation in the okay. project just yet. Yeah, so in terms of how it works, the partnerships that we have, I mean, d- does it vary from project to project what, what we actually do and, and how we are involved in it? I mean, is this, I'm assuming there's some that we've set up ourselves and then there's others that we've just joined in with. How, how does that sort of thing work? Yeah, no, they have quite, they all have quite kind of diverse mm. origins. Uh, like, just like you said, some actually we set up ourselves. We started projects in other yeah. countries and which have evolved into their own 
partner going, you know, into fully fledged um, conservation organisations mm. themselves, um, which has been the case in Vietnam and Sulawesi, uh, a little bit in Zimbabwe. We didn't actually start that program, but we okay. were very, very yeah. early involved yeah. um, working with another zoo in the UK. Um, others, you know, yeah, there's, it's more of a partnership between, you know, a, a locally based organization yeah. like yeah. the Nigerian Conservation Foundation and us and the project on the ground is, is a kind of uh, a joint effort. Um, but what we try to do is, there's a, there's a number of factors, but what we, one of the things we try to do is, um, is, is work in projects where we do have a voice. So we're not yeah. simply donors. We're involved with the direction of the project. So obviously, that's if we've set set it, set it up and it's in its early days, then you know that'll be um, actually quite time intensive from our end. Yeah. Um, and we probably will kind of move away a little bit from day to day running as as mm. the as the project mm-hmm. team grows. Uh, but we want to be involved. We don't want you don't want to just give someone else money and say, right, you go and yeah do that work. Um, but that's a balance with, uh, you know, the capacity building and um, empowering the, the people on the ground to to make those decisions. So we want to be involved in the in setting the direction of the projects, but we don't want to be necessarily involved in what happens day to day. Yes, and that does change between projects. Not yes. direct hand holding, but yeah, at the same exactly. time, yeah, yeah, being that presence so, and, and achieving a, a sen- it, Aiming for a partnership approach, yeah. essentially, yeah. But, a, but a meaningful partnership, not just a, a donor-recipient one. Um, yeah. yeah. So are there people working for these projects that are employed by the World Planet Trust, or are they employed by the country? No, that they're so in? they're always employed by uh, the, the our partner organisation yeah. within the yeah. country, yeah. Um, and that's another reason for our approach, really, is that, you know... We're not really a big enough organisation as the Wild Planet Trust to yeah. have offices in, you know, <laughs> other countries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, some conservation organisations obviously do do that. Um, but it, that would be a, a huge undertaking for us mm. and very complicated legally. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another reason why we work in partnership and all, all the um, people working on the projects are employed by those partners. Uh, we have had in the past a mixture of kind of researchers and people working directly for the partners so sometimes mm. uh we've had researchers from the uk or other countries who you know are part of the project and they're there but they're you know they're not employed they're there mm. to do their yeah to do their research yeah um but at the moment um i think all of our all of our project staff are you know from the countries from the range countries that the that the projects operate in cool nice Okay, so moving away slightly then, um, back to your actual job role, what skills do you think you need for your job that you wouldn't necessarily directly associate with it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what people would directly associate with my job. But generally speaking, uh, I think what's happened in the in the world of conservation is that it's gone from a, a, a pretty narrow focus on the on the biology, mm-hmm. on the natural science side of things. So it's still, you know, pretty common that lots of people working in conservation will have, uh, you know, some kind of postgraduate degree in, in ecology or zoology. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, that, and that's one way into it. That's my, my own route. Um, but I think a lot of the skills that you actually need in this kind of role, you know, they're not things that you learn doing a master's degree or yeah. a phd necessarily so you know it's a lot of project management skills um which you may well gain from from other walks of life yeah uh, and you know there are quite a number of people in conservation who've kind of made a big you know change in their career yeah. path yeah. And yeah. they were doing something completely <clears throat> different but they've been successful when they've kind of turned their hand to to working in conservation I'm guessing you need pretty good people skills. Yeah, I, I think amount. so. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, th- I think you do. You definitely need good communication skills. Work, be able to work with people. Be tolerant of your working conditions. This is more, you know, on the field side <laughs> of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect, which is uh, you know, not a skill set that I have, but which we are recogni- increasingly recognising is important, is is the 
social science mm. aspect. So, uh, okay. so people who are actually trained in in psychology or sociology, uh, human geography. Yeah, I think that those uh, that's another role within conservation that's um, that's growing a lot at the moment, and something that we've uh, also done um, uh, within the Wild Planet Trust. As you know, we've got we've had uh, we've spot, um, funded and, and supervised uh, PhD research on the social science side of things as well. Yeah, because we, we spoke to Harry early on in the podcast series, and obviously he's social sciences and yeah. was directly involved with Zalmat Kanyaki over in Indonesia, wasn't he? So yeah, the project in Zilawesi, yeah. Yeah, so would you say, I mean, Zalmat Kanyaki is probably quite a good example of a, of, of a quite a community-focused project. Um, would you say that's the direction that conservation seems to be going in more and more now? Yeah, I, I think so. Um it's a funny one. I think it, it, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's been a very long, for a very long time, that's been recognised. But yeah. I think there's a kind of difference between it being recognised and talked about and actually happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think, but I think, but I think that's definitely the, you know, the right direction to go in. So I think, I mean, in a very uh, black and white sense people talk about fortress conservation so that that means putting a fence around yeah uh, putting a fence around habitats and and wildlife keeping people out yeah uh, and and saving uh, species that way and then kind of more community uh, community participation is at the kind of other end Um, and I think that's much too kind of simplistic uh, but the, the kind of weight of the argument is 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 kind of coming down on on the community side because circumstances change and those fences if people if people don't want fences mm-hmm. uh, separating them from from then uh, from the from the areas where they where they live then at some point you know yeah it's not going to work um, yeah. So I think yeah, definitely community engagement really important and, and something that we've done very well in in Sulawesi. The t- the team in Senamat Kanyaki have been really good at that generally, but particularly in an area called Tankoko, which is mm. uh, which has been a bit of a focus and where um, we know there's a there's a kind of core population of the uh, Sulawesi crested black macaques. Cool. Okay. So I reckon it's probably about wrapping up time there. Yeah, otherwise yeah, we could, I mean, we could keep talking, but we, we do have Tracy to talk forever. to as well. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, we are going to talk to Tracy next, who is obviously uh, one of your colleagues who does more of the UK yeah. side of things. Yeah, uh, yeah. But obviously with uh, our discussion here today, Andy, we've barely scratched the surface. Oh, I know. Uh, so there is obviously a lot more that you do and a lot more that we could talk about, but unfortunately Very you are so. rather busy. And we're fitting this in between meetings. <laughs> uh, yeah, sadly. So. And before you go away to Nigeria. So thank you very much for coming on. I've got one last question for you. And obviously it's to do with your job role today. What would your advice be to your 15-year-old self to get to where you are now? Yes. Uh, it's an interesting one because actually one of I've, I've always wanted to work with wildlife mm-hmm. always want you know from uh very early age i wanted to and as soon as i kind of understood yeah. conservation as a thing from largely actually through zoos and through uh books like uh, those written by gerald durrell yeah you know that's been my kind of dream i've been very very lucky to kind to 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 work in an area that I always wanted to. But when I was 15, I had a big wobble because okay. <laughs> I was terrified I was going to fail my uh, science, or things like a d- double science GCSE. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it was at the time, but, you know, chemistry, physics, biology. Because I was, I was pretty rubbish at physics <laughs> and chemistry. I was okay at biology. But I thought that was going to drag me down. Uh, okay. And uh, I wouldn't be able to then get into uh, university to do... Um, right. To do... Uh, zoology or ecology or one of the kind of relevant things going back to this idea that i mean in those days certainly yeah if you wanted yeah, to work in conservation those, that's what you needed what you yeah. did. um those, uh, so certificates so i would need to speak directly to my 15 year old self and say <laughs> you know have faith keep keep going <laughs> keep, going. keep <laughs> revising because uh, okay. yeah. you'll you'll scrape the grades and <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you, and you'll make it yeah uh, okay 
Um, and I think you know, to to keep to keep going and to and to um, and to be confident in your in your abilities and your in your ability to uh, to come at situations uh, in a different way. If, if yeah. what's if what's working, if if what you're doing isn't working, mm. uh, there's usually uh, more than one way to to skin the proverbial cat. So <laughs> I would Excellent say, yeah, stuff. keep keep going. Okay, so perseverance. Perseverance. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Andy, uh, for coming onto the podcast. Obviously, you're off to meetings now, so we before won't you keep jet you off to Nigeria. Longer. Yeah, it's a been a busy week. <laughs> I can imagine. Right, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on, and thank you. of course, hopefully, we'll uh, talk to you again at some point in future projects. Yep, it'd be a pleasure. Thanks very much. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Planet Trust a conservation charity based in the southwest of the UK with zoos in Paynton and Newquay, local and national nature reserves, and field projects in the UK, Tanzania, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Vietnam, and Sulawesi. You can find out more on our website, www.wildplanettrust.org.uk. Rightio, so that was our discussion with Andy, obviously very busy person. In fact, <laughs> at the time of recording this, it's before he's gone away. And by the time that you're hearing this, he's probably already in Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, may still be over there. But uh, who are we talking to next, Joe? So next up, we've got Tracy. So she's equally knowledgeable about all things conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's easy to assume because we care for exotic animals that all of our conservation work must involve exotic mm-hmm. animals. But actually, it doesn't. We do a huge amount in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tracy's the person that heads up a lot of our UK projects and works with our project partners, um, in the, mostly in the local area, in the Devon area, um, and including down at our site down in Slapton Lee as well. Mm-hmm. So she's going to be our next person that we're chatting to. Excellent. Let's hear from our discussion with Tracy. We are now joined by Tracy. Obviously, your name is Tracy, but Tracy, who are you and what do you do at Wild Planet Trust? So, yeah, I'm Tracy and I'm a conservation officer here and I manage our programmes within the UK. So that includes research as well. Okie dokie. And the follow-up question to that, obviously, we'll get into all the different projects and things like that as we go through the rest of our kind of questions we've got for you. But my follow-up question is, what is the strangest job you've ever done? (laughs) Well, in my life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In your entire career. I've had quite a lot of weird jobs, actually. Is Um, there any highlight? (laughs) Yeah. When I was quite a lot younger and I was saving up to do a little bit of travelling, we were kind of doing all sorts of weird jobs okay. one of the s- strangest ones I ever did was painting a swimming pool which in itself doesn't sound that weird <laughs> um, but it was used as a sprinkler system for this factory so they drained it cleaned it and then they gave me emulsion paint which is quite interesting water based paint to paint the swimming pool Okay. then they had to fill it before I'd finished so then we finished it in a canoe which is <laughs> <laughs> the most bizarre thing <laughs> I got okay. paid, so that was fine, but it was a bit odd. Um, yeah, and that, and probably working on banana farms, that was quite interesting okay. as well, which I've done quite a bit of in Australia. Oh, <laughs> I was nice. about to say, where in the world? In Australia. <laughs> what, picking bananas? Or? Yeah, doing all sorts, actually. I used to mostly drive the tractors and again do various management things yeah. around the bananas. Oh, I've always wondered this about bananas, and you could probably answer it. Do they... Harvest like the entire massive. What's it? It's got a name, hasn't it? The whole thing. Yeah. So they they cut it at the top, yeah. um, and if uh, yeah, especially if you're on an organic farm, that will likely be full of big spiders and snakes and things as well. Oh, lovely! So that was a, a bit of an occurrence. Um, <laughs> the guys would get them on their shoulders hold the bottom and then the top would be cut and then you quite have to find (laughs) terrified probably snake kind of zooming out of the bottom but doesn't uh, sound fun it's one of those places where every every bit of wildlife is out to kill you so yeah yeah so safest on the tractor then yeah (laughs) yeah with snakes and killer spiders climbing a tarantula under the seat or something (laughs) now that'll do it Oh, okay. Anyway, on that note, I'm like it's pretty cool. Crawling now, thinking of spiders and snakes all over me. I like them as animals, but to observe, not yeah. to touch. Fair enough. Okay, so we always start with um, a bit about how you got to where you are today, and I know it's quite quite a long one for you with lots of various roles. Yeah, although it's kind of come around in a circle, really, because my original interest was always conservation and ecology. Um, 
And I don't think I really realised that until I went to university the first time round many years ago when I left school. Um, and that's sort of when I really got into the sort of science, I guess, of ecology, and I found that just fascinating. Um, so I did, yeah, quite a number of jobs um, around sort of water pollution. I worked for um, the National River Authority, as it was at the time, um, for a couple of different jobs in ecotoxicology and monitoring um, river uh, systems and things. Um, I've always been a really keen gardener, actually. Mm. It's something that's been throughout my whole life, really. Uh, and somehow managed, I think it was when I had a small child, basically, and was looking for little jobs that would fit round. So um, I ended up teaching horticulture for quite a few years, actually. And okay. I was really keen on the whole kind of wildlife gardening and yeah. ecology in your garden and how to kind of do really simple things to kind of make that space for nature in your mm. own home. So that's another big passion of mine is kind of that kind of small actions that can really make a difference, which is something that I still try and bring to my role here at Wild Planet Trust as well, because I think it's it's a key thing. Um, and I've done a bit of consultancy as well, so ecological consultancy. But I think what got me through to this this job is actually I went back to university and and did a master's really looking at um, getting good skills on how to identify things how to conduct proper mm. research and collect mm -hmm. data in a meaningful way how you kind of plan and design surveys and things and I think um, that was fundamental actually mm. um, and I was doing consultancy work at the same time so it all kind of merged in and I think that was really really useful um, so it's a skill that I don't think I think many people that leave uni maybe with their first degree they don't always have many field skills and mm. they're quite difficult to acquire you have to kind of just go out there and and have a go at it Do a lot it. of times yeah. um, so it was a very practical course um, and I just thought it was a brilliant course actually I have to say um so that's kind of that refocused me I think yeah back into kind of the world that I really wanted to be in which was kind of getting out there and um looking at the you know the ecology of life and uh looking at kind of how, what we can do around our habitats as well so cool and then I'm right in thinking you're the same as Andy in that you did your PhD part-time. I did. You, so, um, so when I started working here, I was actually still doing my master's. So mm. I did a project that actually led into my PhD, um, which was quite convenient. <laughs> um, and then did a part-time PhD sort of for the first seven years of working mm. here, which is, is quite hard work doing, doing <laughs> that. Um, and that gave me quite a lot more uh, skills, I guess, around um, managing research, um, I think, and a lot of other sort of transferable skills. Um, yeah, so I'm now a doctor, um, and hopefully, yeah, a lot of that kind of expertise that you learn through doing a PhD kind of now comes into play with my current role. Cool. Okay, so on to your current role then. Um, <laughs> so... I mean, conservation officer is quite a broad title. Mm. What does that actually mean? What, what are you doing mean? day to day? <laughs> it's quite a broad remit, actually. Um, I think working here at the zoo is quite interesting because I meet people that have a real passion for primates. You know, that's my thing. You know, I love that. Like one Joe. right now. <laughs> Someone else, you know, they're really into their invertebrates or their, their reptiles. But doing, um, doing what I do, it basically covers everything. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously you're not an expert in everything by any sort of stretch, but um, people do tend to ask you a lot of very detailed questions about, I don't know, bee behaviour or yep. um, you know, something quite bizarre as that. So, I And I've always been somebody that's actually quite interested in a lot of things. I'm quite a generalist, I think, in mm. my, which is good <laughs> in my kind of interest. Um, I mean, my background is possibly more botanical, but yeah. that's... That's kind of in part because of the choices I made, you know, in terms of modules I selected when I was doing my master's, because yeah. actually underpinning everything, pretty much, we get back to habitat, which is made up of plants. Yeah. So actually, if you have a kind of understanding of that sort of thing, then a lot of other stuff build, builds on yeah. that. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, so what do I do? So we have um, a number of um, programmes, which obviously you guys are hopefully aware of. Um, and managing those is, yeah, spans a whole range of things from me going out on a boat to oversee some volunteer divers, jumping in the sea and counting seagrass, to working out budgets, to doing all the health and safety and risk <laughs> assessments. It's quite a lot of paperwork. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we we spend a lot of grants, so um, there's a lot of grant funding to deal with and reporting back to funders. So that bit of it probably doesn't sound quite so exciting, but it's all part of, of what you do. Yeah. And obviously, um, the other part of what we do is we have, we have placement students and we have master's students as well. So it's focusing their projects around our conservation projects. So where do we need questions answered and, mm. you know, where can we kind of inform management, for example, on our reserves? Are we doing the right thing? Are we seeing um, the benefits that we want to see through the management we're doing? And being able to, you know, do a few pertinent surveys here and there can help us kind of yeah help us find out the answers to those questions. So that's that's my favourite bit of my job actually is kind of. Um, is the sort of research side, I think, okay. actually. Much easier for you to obviously get out and visit the partnerships here rather than Andy having yes. to arrange a flight, etc. I know, and I always think people probably think, oh, you know, you don't get to go to Sulawesi and Nigeria. And whilst I would quite like to, actually, I'm not sure I'd want to go there for work. I think I'd yeah, rather yeah. go there yeah. and <laughs> just really enjoy them and have a look at lots of the cool stuff. Um, I suspect that Andy has to sit in an office and do things like interviewing <laughs> people in the heat of Nigeria. So um, I'm quite, um, in, I quite enjoy the fact that, in fact, in about 15 minutes, I'm going to go down to Slapton and do some surveys down there. So it's it's accessible and it means I have a much closer working relationship, perhaps yeah. with um, some of our partners that are in the UK. Um, you know, they're often at the end of a telephone, or or we can meet in person. And yeah. I think that. I'm sure that that's easier. <laughs> yes. I can imagine yeah. it would be, yeah. <laughs> we don't tend to have language <laughs> differences and drinks as yeah. well. So, uh, yeah. So, so you do still get to get out and about quite often I do often a bit, then. yes. I try and go to Slapton whenever possible, which is not that often, but, um, yeah, because I live it down there. I've got I've got long links with Slapton. I used to volunteer there back when I was still a student at mm-hmm. my, my first degree, so I've always loved it and it's great having that as part of my job now yeah and probably one of the key things that made me apply for the job in the first <laughs> place <Fair> maybe <laughs> uh, just so listeners are aware as well obviously Slapton Lee is a trust owned site yeah uh, so we look after well Tracy why don't you explain yeah, what yeah. Slapton Lee is because I can okay. give the overview but obviously you're involved yeah so. I thought you were going to ask me how big it was so I'm no, never very good on hectares <laughs> of various bits of land that no, we own th- there are maps that we can find yes, that on but that's yeah. that just so what is Slapton Lee it's a national nature reserve mm-hmm. so it has that kind of designation it's also triple SI so it's mm-hmm. like of special scientific interest um and the reasons for that are many so it has some quite um, important assemblages of breeding birds um, some of the habitats down there are quite unusual and particularly important so the one I'm going to look at later on today is the shingle ridge yeah um, so if you want to go and have a look at a map you would see that Slapton is largely made up of a big freshwater lagoon that's that's um, separated from the sea by a long shingle bar which we have a few of those kind of geological features around the country but it does give a quite a unique set of habitats mm. that we have there and I suppose compared to a number of other nature reserves maybe that people might be more familiar with Slapton has a really big diversity of habitats so we have we have the freshwater habitat we have mm-hmm. reed beds we have willow car so wet woodland we have um, grasslands wet dry grasslands we've got all other woodland ancient woodland we've got secondary woodland <laughs> we've got the shingle ridges you know name it and we've got probably got it down yeah. there um yeah. so that that's interesting it's interesting from a management point of view so mm-hmm. there's lots of different targets and things to kind of consider it's really interesting from i guess from the species point of view mm. because we've got so many different habitats and we have 
um, you know, certain species that will be found in certain places. So, for example, we have um, cell buntings down there. So we find them predominantly in the scrub and in the hedgerows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We do quite a lot of dormouse monitoring down there. So we find them across the reserve, actually. Although we're trying to do a bit more research to unpick that a bit more um, and look at connectivity through throughout the reserve. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. A lot of it's not publicly accessible some of it is there's a really lovely nature trail that mm. goes around the lay which anyone can go and walk mm -hmm. um, and you get some great lookout points across the water and into yeah. the reed beds which is which is fab um, we we manage it in partnership with the field studies council so they actually have feet on the ground and are doing the active management if you like but we have a committee mm -hmm. so we all kind of pitch in in terms of what what needs to happen on the reserve um, and obviously the field centre runs a lot of their field courses within mm. the reserve so there's lots of sites that they use quite regularly for running field courses so yeah interesting quite complicated yeah very beautiful um, and it is a lovely place definitely is, worth yeah. a visit I mean from my perspective obviously wildlife photography and videography and stuff it's fantastic because as you said there. so many habitats and so many species mm. Cool. So setting up partnerships in the UK, I assume it works along the same lines as the overseas. So no one's employed directly by the Wild Planet Trust in relation to our conservation projects, or does it work slightly different? Um, so we've got sort of a range of different mm. arrangements. So okay. um, if we look at, yeah, so we have partnerships. So for example, one of our plant reintroduction projects, we do that in partnership with the National Trust because mm -hmm. they own the site where the plants are being reintroduced to. Yeah. Um, so it can be quite straightforward with that kind of thing. We have, so we contract people with yeah. particular skills. So for example, for our crayfish project, mm -hmm. we really need experts in, the, in their yeah. fields yeah. for that so we actually contract specific people um, to conduct surveys I mean they need to be licensed because it's a protected species yeah. so we start getting into the murky world of needing all of those those things covered um, um, but we also look for support for our projects from other key stakeholders so for example it would be the environment agency would be a key mm -hmm. component perhaps with that for our crayfish because looking at um, rivers and freshwater habitats um, so we kind of pull on expertise where we need to and it's really important that we kind of have a pool of people that kind of contribute to make a successful project yeah. and we work with other zoos as well so again with the crayfish project we we work with Bristol Zoo a fair bit with that so it's it's quite variable yeah. um, at the moment we so we, we have a lot of grant funding for a lot of these projects and they can sometimes be used to employ people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So currently we have somebody working on our seagrass project um, and she's funded through our grants and sponsorships as well. So, yeah, we just have to find which what fits yeah. best really yeah. for what we what we want to do and what skills we need. Um, so for the seagrass, we really need someone who's got some marine biology background, but mm -hmm. was also very good with all our volunteers um, and can can manage that side of things and be quite well organised with all the kit and, and so forth. So, yeah, yeah so it's very variable uh, and each project's a little bit different mm. yeah. as yeah. how it actually works on the ground. So are most of these projects ones that already existed that we've then joined in on or, or are they ones we've set up ourselves? Um yeah, often they kind of do tend to grow organically mm. and we've we've kept them because they fit with our kind of strategy and yeah. they're important to us locally. So, for example, the marine stuff that we're doing here, um, which focuses largely around seagrass within Torbay, is literally, you know, a few yards off yep. our coast here. It's local to us. It's very relevant for us as a site. So it makes absolute sense for us to, to be yeah. involved with yeah. that. Um, things like um, uh, the Stratworts, so the little plant introduction. The only UK site was at Slapton, so we kind of, you know, had a responsibility from yeah, the beginning to do yeah. something about that. So, um, yeah, it, they they kind of can grow organically. Um, we got involved with crayfish since I've been here. Um, we've done various different iterations of that project. 
um, with a key focus on setting up safe arc sites really for, yeah. for those populations. Um, ideally, you don't want to be doing a project forever. It'd be great to think, <laughs> right, well, we've kind of finished yeah. that one. Yeah. Um, but they don't always work like that. Um, and things change as you go forward. Mm. So you, you have to adapt and look at what the best route forward for that project mm -hmm. is, whether that's for us to continue with it or for someone else to take it forward, depending on what their skill set and what they can offer. Yeah offer to that so yeah it's a bit of a roundabout way of trying to explain that wasn't it <laughs> no, it was, but it's quite different with UK I mean you know we always talk about reintroduction in a zoo setting and yeah. say that it's the animals you see here are not going to be reintroduced but mm. but having said that we are actively involved in reintroduction in yeah. a UK sense aren't we so actually I mean and it would be good to find the numbers but I wouldn't be surprised if there's more uh, native reintroduction projects mm. um, because I think there's a there's obviously an awareness that it's really important that we start on our doorstep yeah, yeah. that's yeah. really important um, we live in the country where where we're working with these animals um, which does overcome some hurdles mm. I mean by no means all or no means it's always easier at all but I think that the yeah it, it it can be quite different, and we have the climate as well to breed some of these things, and some things like um, invertebrates and um, some amphibians and things, you mm. know, potentially make really good reintroduction subjects. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a it's a different it's a different kind of uh, focus, I suppose. Yeah. But in some ways, it can be easier. But that's a big, broad generalisation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm a bit worried about even saying that because, <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. No, but for example, with the hazel dormouse. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. we can have them on site in quarantine yeah. and things like that. And we can actually yeah. send them out to... Yeah. We work yeah. with partners on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah so there's a whole range of partners, partners with, a whole with range. dormice. Yeah. And yeah. then they can go and reintroduce them. And it's easier than, say reintroducing a rhino yes, in yeah. Africa because then yeah. there's all the logistics involved. Yeah. I would imagine reintroducing a dormouse is probably being easier than a rhino <laughs> full yeah, stop. Yeah. But yes. yeah, indeed, there's sort of potentially less logistics. Although yeah. we have quite a lot of legislation around protected species in this country. So there are quite yeah. a lot of hoops we still have to jump through cell buntings we were involved in the reintroduction for those as well weren't we? yeah so that's going back oh quite a few years now um so that was again using the skills that we have on site mm. for hand rearing um chicks yeah to a point when they can go into soft release so it's really capitalizing on the kind of skill set that members of our bird department had to mm. be able to to really make that project work and that was actually a really good project i mean the wholesale bunting story is is one of success yeah um and part of it was that project to get them back into cornwall um and that worked really well so we've now have cell buntings in cornwall there are they're um, a, a little bird that doesn't like to travel too far, <laughs> shall we say. So trying to wait for them to naturally recolonise areas mm. was always going to be quite difficult and not really an option for that kind of distance. Um, but also it, that was always coupled with a lot of work with landowners and habitat, including what we've done at Slapton as mm. well to kind of boost numbers in Devon, which was kind of their stronghold um, yeah. where they, you know, been reduced back to, if you like. Um, so yeah, so it was a real nice project that incorporated kind of different skill sets from different people, yeah. and that's what I mean about trying to find what that best matches. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's a bit like with the door mice as well. Yeah. Our vet team, you know, do the health checks and quarantining before they um, get to be released to make sure that they're healthy yeah. and 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 things. So again looking at that skill set and where it can be most useful and that's that's part of what we look at when we're looking at projects we think well what can we bring yeah. to the table that yeah. that we're really good at that maybe other people can't can't mm. cover quite so well so yeah yeah it's quite interesting cool. <laughs> um what is your proudest moment in your role at wild planet trust Ooh. 
Do you know what? It's probably always going to be the classic reintroduction bits, isn't it? Yeah. Like when you just, that little crayfish scampers out <laughs> from your hand, if it's crayfish scampers, and then tootles off into his arc site, and you kind of hope that they're going to go on and make baby crayfish and, and things. It That's always the little feel-good yeah. thing. But actually... Um, I actually really like some of the little things that I really like doing are walking through some of our meadow areas in mm. the summer actually and I don't do it enough because it is really really lovely um so our, our reserves here around the zoo managed by our reserves warden and one of them is um an area of grass and that was probably pretty uninteresting 20 years ago mm. and through the management that's been put in place over that time and various interventions you walk through there in the summer now and there's an increasing number of orchids year on year mm-hmm. it's full yeah. of bees butterflies and all sorts of flowers and it's just it's just gorgeous um and we've got similar piece of limestone grassland and that is my favorite spot in the whole zoo you can stand up there you can see the sea yeah you can see a bit of woodland um and not a lot else and again in the summer it's it's, it's full of life up there yeah. it's great so that's really good i like those are my favorite spots yeah. <laughs> very nice i know exactly where you mean and yep. it is beautiful it I is enjoy going it up is. there myself okay so uh what kind of skills do you think you need for your job that you don't necessarily associate with your job so obviously Ooh. you know ecology skills is an obvious one but yeah what else yeah um don't know i'm wondering if i've got them quite <laughs> organized i'm not sure how organized i am um you've got to be quite flexible mm. um but also yeah i think i'm quite dogged with things i like to actually <laughs> see things through that this i'm going to make this work this is you yeah. know we'll find a way to make this this happen and this work i think you've got to sort of have quite a, a passion for it mm which probably most people that work in conservation do it because they have a passion for it. So I don't think that's probably a rare skill. Um, I don't know. I, I think that um, the research bit I is one of the bits that I've mentioned that I do really like, and um, that doesn't often go along with conservation roles, actually. Mm. So it's sort of a bit of an unusual um, job in that way, which is okay. what I think makes it really interesting, actually, is that coupling of kind of practical um some of it hands-on stuff Mm. some of it kind of more about planning project planning and project management that's probably one of the main skills actually is having some sort of project management skills really being able to keep your eye on all those those lovely bits of paperwork (laughs) yeah when you've got so many projects on the go at once yeah yes i definitely need another whiteboard in the office (laughs) (laughs) so neither of you have mentioned it but i think you and andy are both very laid back I don't know whether being laid back I'll makes... I'll tell you what you do need to be working in conservation is you need to be an optimist. Maybe that's what it is, because yeah. both of you are very much like, yeah, it's fine, not a problem, it's great. <laughs> I suppose it comes from that kind of determination to see things through and the fact that yeah. you kind of have a handle on stuff, and if not, you'll find a way to get it done anyway. Yeah, and you have or, to be quite flexible as well, yeah. I think. I don't think I've ever seen either of you, like, ah, stressed. Apparently, I would um, be rubbish, because I'm a very stressy person. <laughs> at least not in front of us. <laughs> that's true, yes. No, we can do that behind closed doors. <laughs> no, maybe that's, yeah, just our natures. That don't flexibility. Know. But I think, I think being optimistic and having a um, real feeling that, what you're going what you're trying to do is going to work mm. you have mm. to believe that yeah um even in the face of kind of mounting adversity <laughs> yeah um you know which is the world that we live in at the moment yeah um so i i must admit i i know that lots of bad things happen and i try not to focus on that too mm. much and i'm quite um quite a big advocate at licking at solutions i think i'm more solution focused yeah i find that it takes the wind out of my sails if if i focus too much on the the negative side of things because yeah. we know that that's bad so <laughs> what are we going to do about it yeah how are we yeah. going yeah. to that try and find some way way through i think cool okay <laughs> i'm going to do one more from me Ollie, and then okay i'll save it yep. okay um because it's always interesting to hear from people who are doing the job now where do you see 
jobs in conservation going in the future? Because mm. yours is a very traditional kind of yeah. route. Well, things. I think in the last few years, there's been a really important growing role for social scientists because mm. basically conservation actually is about people. And if you, if you, I suppose, a bit cynically look at what people working in conservation are doing, they're undoing what someone else has done um, generally, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, never thought <laughs> and about it. Trying that. to undo damage that, that's happened, uh, you know, mm. uh, from somebody else. So I think the human element of it, and I think traditional people that work in conservation, it's maybe not their first kind of reason for doing things, mm. it's the people aspect. I know so many people that are just really happy being in the woods doing their thing <laughs> and they don't necessarily yeah. want to have to deal with talk to people <laughs> to talk to people yeah but I think I think understanding people and people's motivations and trying to look at how you might change people's behavior yeah it's really important and even um, a big conference um, that I went to towards the end of my PhD which is mm, what, five years ago um, had a huge array of subject matters, but very, very little on social science. I was quite mm. surprised actually, and I think that you know, in the in sort of the years since then, it's become a bigger thing yeah. and really importantly. So, a lot more people with sort of you know human geography or yeah. other sort of backgrounds yeah, yeah, really yeah. moving into that world. And I think there's still room for some of that more traditional stuff, but it's a it's looking at the whole array of types yeah. of skill sets that you actually need. So that's that's one of the big things that I think will change moving forward, um, definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah, gives a wider wider remit for coming into it, though, doesn't it? Then if you yeah. come it from does, that yeah. mixture of backgrounds. And I think a lot of you look at the lot of the skills that are asked for now. Mm. A lot of it's around communication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if it's not, you know, social science type stuff. A lot of it's around communicating stuff to people, yeah. um, which again is really important. And again, is something that maybe 20 or 30 years ago, say, would not necessarily have been mm. high on the list of your average um, reserve warden. I mean, even when I suppose when I started, um, the types of roles that there were, either you worked on a nature reserve or you went and worked for, you know, one of the national bodies doing yeah. something. Yeah. There wasn't really a lot of a lot else going on, to be honest. Mm. So I think I think it's changed a lot and will carry on changing. So yeah, fair enough. We'll wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well that brings it. me on to kind of our final question. Obviously, okay. again, like with Andy, there's so much more that we could talk about. We could get into specific projects, but for now, obviously, we've only had you for the amount of time that we do. Uh, so my last question for you, Tracy, is what would your advice be? to your 15 year old self oh, to get to gosh. where you are now do you know what I often wish that I had done I'm a bit academic I'm afraid I've um, read your papers I know <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think in some ways it's a shame that there's such a big focus on that academic pathway to get into various careers because I think there's a whole raft of practical and yeah. experience based mm. skills that or actually be really useful but I I kind of wish I did my master's much earlier mm. and okay. I, I it was something that I thought about doing and I decided to do something else and I kind of think actually I think I should have stayed on the path uh, and maybe I wouldn't have kind of deviated and wandered all around these other various jobs that I've I've done so I wouldn't have been that wasn't 15 though when I was 15 gosh what do I want to do then I went to be a vet as did anybody <laughs> as we did we all how could you yes. work with animals if you were a bit sciencey really Be that, a vet. that yeah. was the only yeah. option wasn't it yeah so yeah I, I think uh, maybe paying attention to the one ecology lesson I did at school I think that I think <laughs> I might have missed somehow um yeah it was a subject I didn't even know existed till I went to university so okay yeah so it's quite difficult looking back I think Perhaps having a bit more confidence in myself to actually follow the things that I was oh, okay. really passionate about, I think. So yeah. I think that might have been slightly different. Okie dokie. But you never know. 
could be a combination of all those other things that you do that end up that means you get where yep. you are yeah, you I, know. I always think that yeah no, that is a fair way to answer that question because mm-hmm. well obviously it's quite hard to give your 15 year old self advice it's completely yes. hypothetical um, <laughs> i don't think i'd want to and meet all my 15 anyway. year old self yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. okay, fair enough well thank you very much tracy for coming okay, on to the podcast obviously we're going to let you go and you're going to go on holiday now aren't you yeah, a bit of a survey down at Slapton. Bit of survey first, bit and survey, then you're off for a few days. And then I'm going to Scotland, yes. Very nice, very nice. Survey. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and giving us your time. And obviously we'll no hopefully be speaking to you about specific projects sometime in the future. Okay, good day. All right then, thanks very thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening or watching our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving us a review or if you're watching, please hit the like button and leave us a comment about your favorite part of the episode. To get more content from Wild Planet Trust, please consider checking out our YouTube channel. You can subscribe there and you can also subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Of course, you can find Wild Planet Trust, Painting Zoo and Nuki Zoo on all main social media platforms and we'd really appreciate you checking those out as well. All that's left to say is thank you very much for watching and of course we'll see you in the next episode.